It's been an interesting week, just to uh, say the least, as we've had things going on across the world. We have things going on across the country. We've got a hurricane that's about to impact the East Coast. We've got the biggest fire in California history currently burning and communities and homes being just decimated. But we can worship when we think of eternity, when we think of God, when we think of who God is, when we know that God loves us, when we know God's grace, when we know God's sovereignty. All of these things allow us to be focused on eternity and allow us to continue to worship. Um, It has just been just friends and phone calls and friends of... um, that have served in Afghanistan, friends that are in Afghanistan, friends that are going uh, to Afghanistan to see families just uh, pulled apart once again to talk to people in, in Northern California that have not just lost their house, lost their entire community, gone, churches destroyed, um, no sign of coming back, and just when they think it's uh, safe or people can come back, the fire changes and gets up, and we've sent more firefighters from across the world to go and help and it's just a a time to say I don't know and trust God and so we are going to say I don't know I don't always have an answer but we do know that we can worship God and I will tell you um, as most of you know Tim preached last week so I actually had two weeks to spend time on this passage and to wrestle with this passage and, and, and search God's heart with this passage And this morning, as we think about these temporary things, God makes the eternity so real. And so we get a chance to dwell on eternity, and we're going to be looking at that today as we uh, continue our study in Luke, as we're looking at parables that Jesus taught in Luke. And if you'll remember, a, a parable is, it compares an everyday event or an experience to a spiritual truth. Parables are used to stimulate thinking and to cause the hearer to contemplate what they are hearing. It's not just something we hear and forget. It's not just a quick illustration. It is an illustration, but not just a quick one. It's something we're supposed to ponder on. Parables usually have a single lesson. They point to a single spiritual truth. Today we're going to be looking at one of the parables found in Luke 12. And this has been an extremely interesting study Because that single point, that lesson that Jesus was trying to teach has been hotly contested for almost 2,000 years by theologians on what is Jesus trying to teach this man. And here are just a few of these spiritual truths that theologians have have said was Jesus' main point. Selfishness, eschatology or end times, selflessness, contentment, the, the fragility of life, coveting. And all of these different ideas, people say, oh, that's the main point of this parable. Preparing for sermons is really, really easy when everybody in the world agrees on something. It's very difficult when every book or theologian or you're trying to grasp something and everybody has a different idea. Especially in a parable like this where Jesus says what the main point is in a sentence that we'll get to in just a minute. But we have to remember, when we look at parables, they are illustrations. They weren't standalone teachings, but Jesus was usually teaching a lesson. He was having some uh, time of teaching, and then he used an illustration. He used a parable to highlight what he was teaching. And if we take that parable out of context, we can make it say just about anything we want. 
So when we look at parables, we have to look at the, the context, look to see what it means. So before we dive into this parable, let's just look at its surrounding context. We're going to cover chapter 12 really, really, really quick. But in this passage, we see Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. That means he is heading back to Jerusalem. This is the final trip that he'll make towards Jerusalem. That means it's the end of his coming to the end of his three-year ministry. It's about a 100-mile journey that he was traveling, traveling south. He's going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And as he walks, Jesus is continuing to teach. He's, people are still flocking to him to hear him, and he is still teaching about the kingdom of God. He's still talking about what it means and what it looks like. He's still teaching people about God, and he's still developing his disciples. They are coming. Jesus did not just pack up shop and said, okay, let's get the cross and get this done. But he is literally walking and teaching and talking. At this point, that some people have estimated that about 1,000 people have gathered around Jesus as he is teaching, as he is talking. And we see in chapter 12 that he's teaching about the dependence on God. He's talking about trusting God. He's talking about God's love and God's provision for his people. And, and the first part of chapter 12 is talking about fear not, that God loves you. Right, that God uh, uh, cares for you, that you can trust in God, that he will love you and provide for you. And as we look at today's world, that is a, a truth that we can just park on for a little bit. That is a truth that we can say, ah, I need to be reminded of that as we look around. As we go a little bit further in chapter 12, Jesus talks about don't be anxious. Right? Don't, don't worry when somebody confronts you. When somebody asks you questions, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Just trust in the Holy Spirit. Trust in his provision. And Jesus is, is just teaching his people to trust in God and to depend on God and to find joy in God. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is telling them, like, hey, we're here. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. Those world is just full of distractions. It's full of worthless and temporary things. And unlike the riches of the kingdom that are priceless and eternal, and that's where our hearts need to be, that's where we need to be focused on. And like normal, Jesus is giving this life truth, and there's some crazy guy in the crowd. Scripture tells us that someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, teacher, my brother, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. But he said to him, Jesus said to him, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And first, let's look at who this guy is. We don't know. We don't, we don't know who this guy is. This is the only time that he's mentioned. We don't know why he needs a judge. There's a debate on that. Was his brother holding back some of his inheritance? In the Jewish culture, the, the older brother gets twice as much as the other brother. And this brother's like, hey, Jesus, you're bringing on a new world. I think we should split it 50-50. And so we don't know why he is asking this. Like, well, the question is, where's this guy been as Jesus has been teaching for the last three years? Has he heard anything that Jesus is talking about? And especially at this moment right here, he has completely lost what Jesus is talking about. He has no clue about the point that Jesus is talking about. Right? Jesus is talking about trusting God and depending on God and find, finding peace in God. And this guy's like yelling, I want my $2. Give me my $2. Where's my stuff? I need my stuff. And he's completely missing the point that Jesus is talking about. 
When Melissa, well, even still now, I can't just say when we were dating. There are many conversations that Melissa and I have, and I totally miss the entire point of what she is telling me. I remember there was this one time that when we were dating, people said I had a fear of commitment. I did not have a fear of commitment. I just didn't like to make plans in case something better came up. <laughs> so Melissa would tell me, like, hey, these people have invited us. Can we go? And I said, well, we'll see. We'll see. And then she's like, well, you keep saying that. You say maybe, you say might. She goes, like, when you're dealing with people, you need to honor people. You need to respect people. You need to show that they're important. You need to show that you care. You need to show that you value this time with them. And I'm like, but what if somebody gives me tickets to the Niners game? Right? Like, what if that happens? And then I have to break it off, and then that's worse. And, that's and she's like, this is somebody's wedding. Right? You're not going to go to a football game over a wet. And it's like, well, man. Depends on who they hey, Listen, uh, the military didn't let me go to either one of my brother's weddings, and their weddings went just fine without me, right? The weddings are not dependent. Mine was dependent on me, but the rest are not, usually, right? So Melissa is trying to teach me this life lesson. This is something that's going to benefit me for the rest of my life, this truth. And I really can't see past the three-month football season. Like, that's where I am building my life, and she's looking at things for eternity. And why Melissa just gave me a dirty look, maybe it was a hopeless look. When this guy asked Jesus the question, Jesus responds with a parable. And Jesus gives him this parable to help him understand what he was talking about. I'm going to go ahead and read this parable to you. It's found in verse 16. And it says, and he, it's referring to Jesus, says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So in the one, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Before we go on, we have to look at something here. Because sometimes when we think of Jesus, we think of him as, as this nice guy, has a sheep on his shoulders, and he's really loving and kind to everybody. And here Jesus has said, you're a fool. Right? He tells us, this guy, Jesus knows who he's talking to. Him. And here's the problem. There's a whole bunch of other people in there that... Jesus is like, oh, I'm talking to you. And some of those people understood exactly who Jesus was talking to. Right? He, many of those, they understood it. Some of us in, in the church, Jesus says, you fool, you're storing up, you're looking at the wrong things. Guess what? He's talking to you. Right? When our hearts are not set on the right thing, he is talking to us. And Jesus says, fools are those who lay up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And then it goes on to say in verse 22, Jesus says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And then we see uh, in chapter 12, Jesus goes on, he talks about God provides food for the birds, he provides food for the ravens. Jesus goes on to say, Jesus dresses the lilies. Look how beautiful the fields are, and Jesus did all of that. And then he goes on in verse 30, and he says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, 
And he's talking about those things, the food and the clothes and the material things. Jesus says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. We see as we go through Luke, as we see in chapter 12, Luke uh, he, he opposes the idolatry of self and, and stuff and our savings accounts. And he urges this trust in God, that you need to trust in God, not in ourselves or our materials or our money, but we need to trust in God. And we know this truth from Scripture. King Solomon wrote about it in a book. He wrote a book on all this stuff. And he said, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. Like none of this stuff really matters in the end. But the emptiness found by the idolatry of stuff and self and savings is not just found in Scripture. It is realized in the world today. When we talk about ourself, when we make ourselves the focus, when we say that joy is the number one thing that we're supposed to do is joy for ourselves, this is called hedonism. This is called hedonism. It's seeking self-pleasure above all else. There's something out there called the paradox of hedonism. Right? It's described by a, a famous philosopher, you may know him, Henry Sedgwick, and he's a utilitarian, so he is someone that is seeking the pleasure, seeking his own pleasure, and he is philosophy about how to have humans have the greatest pleasure. And he said this, the impulse towards pleasure can be self-defeating. We fail to attain pleasures if we deliberately seek them. Right? We fail to find pleasure because it becomes the one thing that we continually seek and we never find joy in it. We never find satisfaction. We always want the next thing. It's never as good as we thought it was in our mind. And if you have a family and you've tried to do forced family fun, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It never never works out as planned. Not too long ago, Melissa and I, we planned a fun family day at the Santa Monica Pier It was going to be so beautiful. The birds were going to be out chirping. The water was going to be pretty. We were going to walk on the boardwalk. Melissa even found a gourmet donut shop. And so we're like, hey, we'll take the kids out. We'll have a beautiful day at the the pier. And then we'll go have gourmet donuts. Like, life does not get better than this. We were pretty excited. So we pull into the parking structure. I don't even think we got out of the parking structure and our kids were already fighting. Right? It's too hot in here. I'm too tired. How far do we have to walk? The boys are annoying me. This is dumb. That's all there is here? Oh, this smells like fish. It's cold. I got splinters in my feet. And they were just fighting the whole time. So it's like, oh, we're done. We're going to go to the donut shop because donuts make everything better. So we go to the donut shop, which apparently closes early. And they said, hey, we're about to close in five minutes. Here's our donuts that have been sitting out all day. They look gross. We're like, can we, you have a menu here? Can we? No, we're done. We shut our machines down. Here's our leftover donuts that just before we give them away, we'll let you buy them if you want. Right? And, and we're like, okay, kids, you're going to eat these donuts and you're going to love them. I don't remember how much they were, but I think we had to like write a big check to get three donuts that we were going to split. And our kids are sitting there going, I want the Slurpee from 7-Eleven across the street. This donut is gross. I'm allergic to this. I'm going to throw this away. Can we give this to the birds? <sighs> we get back to the car. This is the worst part. I'm a horrible father. I tell you this. We get back to the car. It's like, everybody shut your mouths. Family fun day is over. 
No more talking till we get home. I need to have some peace. And then I said, I don't care what anybody tells you guys. If they said, did you have fun at Family Fun Day, you just say yes. Okay? This is the best time ever. I do, I do not think we've been back to Santa Monica since. Like, I think it is burned that that is no place for fun. Right? But we, we put this trust in ourselves and we said, I know what's going to make us happy. This is going to be so great. Our family's going to love this. We missed the mark. We missed it. We were so wrong. And that happens all the time. It reminds me of that saying that the man's second uh, happiest day in his life is when he buys his boat. The first happiest day in his life is when he sells his boat. Right? That's, we, we, we have these dreams of things. And we said, oh, this is going to make me happy. And, and we missed the mark. When we talk about our stuff. Professor Hamilton is a guy in Australia, and he's studied and he's written extensively on social trends. And he notes this in his book. He says, the rates of stress, depression, obesity are high as people try to cope with the emptiness and disappointments of consumer life. That trying to keep up with the Jones, it, it, constructing an identity through materialistic means encourages fragile self-images which may explain the link between materialism and psychological distress. So here's a guy that studies it. He says, stuff is stressing you out. My father-in-law has a saying, and I can't tell you how true it is. He says, you don't own anything. It only owns you. Try owning a house. Oh, my gosh. You don't. You don't. They destroy you. And then we talk about money. We talk about savings, our money in our life. And if I just, man can't buy me love but money could buy me a boat there's that song out there and we always think like if I just have enough money I could do whatever I want if I just had enough security things would be better I would just have peace let me introduce you to John Rockefeller his personal worth was uh equivalent it was nine uh 900 million in 1913 which is equivalent to about 24 billion today 24 billion today and today that would only put him in like the top 75 of the richest people in the world However, he is considered the richest man of modern times because his net worth was 1.5% of the nation's GDP. So one person had 1.5% of the nation's. Just to put that in perspective, if we took the two top richest people in the United States, if we took Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, Bill Gates before the divorce settlement, we don't know what it is after, Bill Gates before the divorce settlement, we put them together they would be just under 1.5% of the nation's GDP. And here, Rockefeller was above that. So, more money than we, money is literally going to waste. And they asked him, a reporter asked him, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And his answer was, one more dollar. One more dollar. Right? Scripture tells us that the eyes of a man are never satisfied. And here we are, the, the richest man ever. And he was not content with his savings account. Was not happy with his savings account. So when we look at this parable, when we look at understanding this parable, the the key to this parable is in verse 15. It says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The fool's focus in this was on getting things for himself, increasing his possessions. And these are just things that would eventually grow old and become worthless. They would have no meaning. 
And foolishness consists in thinking that life ends with either a new promotion or securing our economic future for the the end or filling our house with stuff or achieving our dream. They call it a dream for a reason, but achieving our dream retirement. And the problem with this man's retirement package is that it was focused on earthly treasures that are eaten and destroyed by moss. And whether he lives 60, 80, or 100 years, it'll be worth the same when he stands before Jesus worth nothing it means nothing no matter how long he lives or how much he has when he stands before Jesus it means nothing and it's easy in this world to uh, adopt the mindset of acquiring stuff that it can bring us happiness that can bring us meaning that can bring us security but as Jesus says at the beginning life is more than possessions that is not what our life's goal is to be possessions and wealth and things I want you to listen to me they're not bad or evil I'm not saying having these things are, are bad or evil. These things, right, money or boats or cars or houses, they're not going to heaven or hell. Right? They don't have souls. They're inanimate objects. They don't mean anything. They are not the focus of this parable. They're not what Jesus is, is trying to have us look at these things and decide if they're good or bad. Jesus wants us to look at our hearts. Where are our hearts when we talk about these things the the issue is our hearts and do we find treasures in our possessions things that are temporary or do we find treasures in God and his kingdom and things that are eternal for where our treasure is there will be your hearts also so the intent of this parable is not about the evils of money it's not about end times it's not about planning for retirement it's a parable about our heart right is our heart set on the things of this world or are they set on the kingdom of God do we get distracted by looking around and accumulating into our hearts get burdened by the things here or can we just worship as we focus on God Jesus tells us that fools focus on seeking life in the riches of this world but the righteous find life in the riches of God In a temporary world with temporary treasures, the question then becomes, well, how do I become rich towards God? How do I I become rich towards an eternal God, somebody that lasts for eternity, somebody that I will spend eternity with? How do I become rich towards God? And those who are rich toward God, man, we're content with what we got, right? Those that are rich toward God, we have faith in God's generosity toward us. We know that we're not good enough, no matter how hard we try we know that we especially in this room we know scripture we know that we've fallen short of the glory of God right when we go home when we're in our private spaces we know our hearts are divided we struggle with what our hearts and why can't I give my heart completely to God why can't I just worship God fully in this moment and in his holiness why can't I worship him always why do I have questions or doubts or concerns I'm not worthy of him but sometimes, but sometimes we believe the lie that, yeah, I'm bad enough, but I can do this. I can make myself good enough. If I just do whatever it is, you just fill in the blank. If I just go to church enough, if I just give enough, if I just read my Bible more, if I just spend a, a longer time in prayer, if I pray before every meal then just, instead of just dinner, then I will be good enough. And friends, that lie right there leads to one of two places. The first one is it leads us to pride because we think that we're good enough. 
right? Think that somehow we can do something for ourselves and stand in the holiness of God because we are good enough, because we rate it, because I worked hard enough, because I earned my spot before God. That's a lie. Right? That is a lie. Scripture tells us, as in Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Right? The whole point of that scripture is, is you can't boast about it. There's nothing you did. There's nothing you can do. Uh, that is a lie. We stand before God in the presence of God. And we stand in his holiness because of his grace and only because of his grace. But the other part where that lie that, that we can if we do something, the other spot that that leads to is it leads to despair because we quickly find out there is nothing we can do. We quickly find out that we can't get there. Right? We, we find we're not good enough. We're not good enough. We're, we're stuck in our slave to sin. We are stuck in our bondage and we start to say, hey, I'm never gonna make it out of here. But scripture reminds us that we were made righteous. We are made right by the riches of his grace, not our doing. Paul tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Not how hard we work, not what we could do, but we are made right simply by the riches of his grace. There is nothing, there's nothing in this world that is more generous than the extravagant grace of God that he showers through us and through our faith in him. When we have faith in his grace, we, we truly believe. We don't believe like, oh, I, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow. That's not the type of belief we have. We have the belief like, my heart beat yesterday. Like, this is a fact, or I wouldn't be here. That's when we believe in Jesus. That is the type of belief that we have. We believe that because of his grace, we are made righteous, and that through him, we will receive the gift of faith and eternal life. It's not something we guess about. It's not something we like, oh, I, I hope this works. We believe we know, we trust the words of Jesus. And those who have put their faith in Jesus, the, those that are dependent on his work and not their effort, they're rich. They're rich by today's standards because they know that they have complete and total forgiveness of their sins. They know that they are loved by our heavenly Father. How many people do you know that would give everything that they own to make their past right? That they would give everything that they have to take that burden, that guilt, that shame off of them and be freed. This is what a broken heart truly seeks. That restoration with its maker, that fullness, that life. And none of that is found outside of Jesus. It is through Jesus that our debt is paid and we are set free. It is through those that have built their faith in the blood of Jesus that our debt is paid and we are forgiven and we are completely free from our shackles and our sins. We're not, on, we're not on probation. We don't have somebody looking over our shoulder. We don't have somebody, oh, you're not good enough. You're going back. We are free. We walk out of the courthouse. We walk out of the jail completely, 100% free. We find that his grace and his mercy, instead of taking our life as, as it should, it gives us life. We find that in his grace. And it is through faith that we are more than conquerors. We do not have to live in fear. We do not have to live in fear from the lion that roams the earth looking to and fro for somebody to destroy. We don't have to fear them because God, Jesus, has defeated his enemies. God is reigning on his authority. God is victorious and we are his. 
Our faith allows us to live without fear of those that, that can't kill the soul. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Our king is victorious. We are victorious through him. Our faith makes us children of that victorious king. That he calls us his. We are not orphans that are just left on the street to just fend by ourselves. Right? We don't have deeds that have shamed us so bad that we are stuck in our lostness. And we hide in the shadows and we only come out at night where we won't have to face the shameful stares of others. We're not that anymore. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are sons and daughters. We can walk out. There's no shame in our life. It's through our faith that he has loved us, that he has cared for us. That no matter what we had done in the past, his grace has washed that over and he loves us. We are somebody that was loved so much that the king of this universe, the ruler, the, the creator of this world, sent his son to die for us. That's how much we're worth. That's how much value he sees in us. There's nothing shameful in that. We do not have to live in shame knowing how much we are loved by the king. And it is our faith in Jesus that enriches us by giving us the blessing of forgiveness and peace and holiness and citizenship in the eternal kingdom. Something that's going to last forever and enriches us with this present happiness. When we know where we're going to be for eternity, when we know we're going to be in the presence of God, when we know we're going to be standing in his throne room singing holy, 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 no matter what we face here on earth, we can have joy. No matter what is going on in our lives at this time or what is going on in the world, we can find joy in knowing the king. These are the things which are the possessions of our soul. These are the things that death cannot deprive us of. These are the things that will be with us for eternity. And our treasure chest is simply opened by our faith in God. The author of Hebrews, he wrote this, said, without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What are those rewards? Is it a nice house? Is it more money? Is it more things to put in your house? Is it a better job? No. It's his grace. Right? It's our forgiven debt, our freedom from fear, a, a love that replaces all of our shame. And it is a promise of eternity in his holiness. For all of eternity, those who put their faith in Jesus will marvel at the immeasurable riches of God as we stand in his kingdom. We will be marvel at his grace. We'll marvel at his love. It will be things that we will need all of eternity just to get an idea of how powerful his grace is and how much his love is for us. That is experiencing true richness towards God when we have faith in God. And the second thing is are those that are, who are rich toward God, they are generous towards others. Right, this parable does not tell us that it's bad to plan for the future. That's not the, the point of this. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that, that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So there is something about planning. There is something about taking care of your wealth and your finances. That's not the point of this. But when we look through this and other parts of Scripture, we know King Solomon, the prophet Isaiah. We know Paul. When they wrote of the terms of eat, drink, and be merry, they were describing overindulgence. This is somebody who's being extravagant in their stuff, maybe even wasteful in their materials. And in this parable, Jesus is warning against an attitude that would be preoccupied with gaining material possessions, would be preoccupied with filling the storehouses that it would exclude any spiritual development or spiritual concerns or any discipleship in our life. 
Church, retiring to a life of self-indulgence finds no favor with God. He was so awesome. I remember I was talking with this mentor of mine. He's 65 years old. And he was getting ready to retire, and he didn't have to retire. He was at the top of the company, but he was making that plan to retire. And I remember I asked him, I said, why, why are you retiring? What are you going to do? Like, you're kind of a busy guy. I know you like working. And he said, man, I think I got 10 more years of physical and mental ability. I want to do the next thing that God has for me right now. I was like, you're not retiring. Right? He's just going to another place. He, he was in this job, and I think he was kind of bored with it. Like, oh, things are going too well. Like, where can God use me for his ministry? He was just getting started. That was his retirement. Right? Material excess will never make one alive or happy or fulfilled. But we know that being a blessing to others makes you rich in God. As Paul told the elders in Ephesus, we don't see these words anywhere in the gospel. Paul quotes Jesus. I'm going to go with him. It says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is a statement of God. This is not just some parental technique that we try to do some ninjury with our kids so that they will actually give the the birthday gift to the person who they're going to. This isn't to trick kids. This is an actual truth from God. And it's generosity. It's a spiritual discipline that when exercised becomes a great blessing, not only to others, but to yourself. We have been sold this bill of goods that accumulation brings contentment, that the more things we have, the happier we'll be, but true joy is found in our generosity. In Proverbs, we read this, the fool, the the sluggard, they crave more and more and more, but the righteous give without sparing. The righteous give without sparing. I wanted to just share something with you, church, because I was so blessed with this. I just want to share it with our church. It's coming that time of year again where we've got to do the budget. Joe has been working on it for a long time. It's out. You can grab it on the back. And I was sitting with a, a group of leaders, and we were talking about the budget. And what do you do when you look at the budget? You daydream, right? You start thinking about, oh, man, if we had money, we could do this, or if we, we could put a wave machine in the youth room. You start getting all crazy with all these different things that you think you could do. And I remember this, this one leader just said, man, wouldn't it be nice if we gave away 20% instead of 10%? Wouldn't it be nice if we were a blessing to our community? Wouldn't it be nice if there was some need in our community that we could just give to and not just proclaim the gospel, but live out the gospel? It's like, yeah, wave machine's stupid. Let's do that. <laughs> right? There was this, uh, uh, he wanted to be a light in West Hills. Right? He wanted to, to give money. We don't need to be extravagant, but we need to look for opportunities to share the gospel with our community and with our neighbors. Right, those that are rich in God, we're not always collecting one more thing or one more dollar or, or one more toy. Those that are rich in God are searching for one more opportunity to be a blessing to others. One more opportunity to share Jesus with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. One more opportunity to love somebody. And in many parables, as we wrap this up and as we look at these many parables, there's many options that we can relate to. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the parable of the soil, and we had kind of these four options. Were we a hard soil? Were we a distracted soil? Were we a, a, a shallow soil? Or were we the good soil? And we kind of have to evaluate our hearts, and we kind of have to play this game. Well, I'm like maybe a two and a half, or maybe I'm a three, and we're trying to see where we fit out of those four choices. Last week, as Tim taught on the Good Samaritan, we're, we're looking at these three people, and really we have this thing. Hey, are we looking for an exception of who we don't have to love? 
Are we, look, are we one of those first two and we're like, oh, that person's not like me or that person's different? Do we fall into that camp or do we fall into the other camp that is looking for examples of how to love? And so we get to look at our hearts. We get to see who we are. We get to see which group we fall into. In this parable, there's only one option. Are you a fool or not? Right, this is the only, only option that Jesus gives us. Are you a fool or not a fool? Where is your heart? Where are you desire to go? Where is your heart set on? What are you looking for? What are you searching to give you joy and, and happiness? Right, where are you looking for rest and peace and security? And do you find your heart, does it find self-worth and possessions? Jesus calls you a fool. Jesus stresses this is foolishness. Fool. Words of I didn't make that up. Those are Jesus' words in Scripture. Fool. I'm supposed to say that, church, I love you before I say Jesus called you a fool, maybe. Love you, church. The truth is, is the only way that we can fulfill the desires of our heart, the only way we can fill the restoration, the only way that things can be made right, the only way we can find peace, the only way we can love others, that we can truly love others, the only way that we can find rest is in Jesus. And scripture says if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. Church, while full is focused on finding life in the temporary treasures of this world, those rich toward God, they find life in his generosity. And while seeking the most uh, while seeking that generosity, they will receive the most treasured words that they will ever hear when they stand before the king. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You want a treasure that lasts forever. Imagine those words coming from your savior as you stand before him on the last times. Well done, my good and faithful servant. What is your heart desiring? Is it desiring things or is it desiring that message from God, one sentence. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we ask you to look at our hearts. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for times of foolishness. Lord, we just get on our knees, we repent, we turn from those ways, we look at how generous that you have been to us and how your grace has literally changed our lives not just for the next 60, 70, 80, 90 years, but for all of eternity, your grace allows us to stand in your presence and in your holiness, and we are so grateful for that. Lord, we would just pray that you would grab our hearts and that your generosity in our life, we would somehow be able to give somebody some small glimpse of your glory, some small glimpse of who you are, and that you would work through us. Lord, we just pray that you would use us to make West Hills somewhere that people see Jesus. Right, that hearts are changed, that lives are changed, that this city is transformed for your glory. And we pray for that. Lord, we just pray that we would be able to be eternally focused for our lives. Lord, we pray that we would see these opportunities. And sometimes when we say, I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. This doesn't make sense to me. We would trust in your sovereignty. We would trust in your power. Lord, look at the opportunity we have to share your grace with so many people because of what is going on. 
Look at the opportunities that you are providing us to be generous. That you are providing us to, to, to be worked through. That you are opening up doorways to make your gospel known throughout the world at this time. Lord, we pray that you would grab our hearts. We thank you for your generosity and we pray that we would have the courage to be generous to those that you put in our communities and those that you put in our way and those lives that you allow us to touch for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in the gracious name of Jesus we ask all of these things. Amen.